may be seated. This morning we are going to continue our series through the book of Joshua. And we'll, we will be looking at Joshua chapter 3. When Jennifer and I got married, we put a ton of work into the preparation of that wedding ceremony. Well, mostly she did. Um, we, you know how that works. You have to send out several invitations, and, and we ended up having about 400 people at our wedding, um, 12 attendants on the stage, full meal, you know, the cake and, and all, the, uh, all the pizzazz that goes along with, with the big wedding. And, you know, they have a video presentation, people taking about a quarter of a million pictures and, and uh, a wedding dress with a, with a tail the length of a football field. You know, the whole thing. And, and of course, all this costs money, so you have to pay for, for everything that's involved in a wedding, all the people that are involved. And I don't know, the total cost is probably, what, $450,000 or something like that? I have no idea. Um, but if you're like me... When you think of wedding ceremonies, you think, why spend so much time and effort leading up to this ceremony, making the ceremony so long, and then you have all these things of remembrance that helps us look back at the wedding ceremony. Why? I mean, we could have had this wedding done in 15 minutes, right? I mean, I I admit, that's such a guy thought, right? You guys agree with me? We, uh... (laughs) We have all this preparation, but we are so task-oriented as guys. We're just thinking, okay, what are we trying to do here? We're trying to get married. What does it take to get married? Well, we have to get a marriage license signed. Well, that doesn't take very long. Let's see what it takes to get a marriage license signed. We need a couple witnesses, a pastor, or someone to do the ceremony. Fifteen minutes could be over. Why take so much time? Well, I think the preparation... And the, the length of the ceremony and the remembrance back to the ceremony is important because it highlights the significance of the event, right? You are making a covenant with your spouse before God and, and all the witnesses that, that come to the event. It's no small thing to enter into the covenant of marriage. And so it's not wrong to have a big ceremony like that. It's not wrong to have... Uh, all the the uh, all the things that go into the ceremony. It's not wrong to to have all these objects of remembrance so that we can look back on it because it is an important event. And in Joshua chapter three and four, we have a, a very significant event in the in the life of Israel. And Joshua uses two chapters to talk about one single event: the crossing of the Jordan River. Now, if I were writing the book of Joshua, well, first of all, it would be called the book of Jacob. Okay, And in there, when I was talking about this event, I would give it one small phrase, four words. Israel crossed the Jordan. That sums up the entire two chapters. But instead, Joshua uses two full chapters to talk about all the details. And he keeps repeating things. And then in chapter 4, he goes back and he talks about all the things that they were supposed to remember as a result of what God was doing at the Jordan River. Why so much time given to one event? I think it's the same reason that we give so much time to a wedding. It's because Joshua was highlighting the significance of this event in Israel's history. 
I mean, think of it. Think of what Israel had been through. Think of the captivity in Egypt. And then their flight from the Egyptians. Standing with their backs to the Red Sea while the enemy is approaching. God allowing them to cross. Think about all the disobedience that took place while they were in the wilderness. And then how Moses and his generation disobeyed God and were not able to receive the promise that God had given to them, to their forefathers. Think of all the death that Joshua and this current generation had witnessed because of their disobedience and their lack of faith. Think of all of their parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and maybe even some older brothers and sisters who had died in the wilderness. And now, the anticipation that they, are, that, that they have right now as they're standing on the east of the Jordan about to cross over into the Promised Land. The, the land which had been promised to Abraham several hundred years earlier. Now, this group, this family of Israel was about to receive that promise. All that work that goes into the wedding, all the selecting the right colors, the, the discussions or... Uh, arguments, maybe you could say, over what is the best thing to have in each area, is now it all comes to a culmination when that bride is standing at the threshold of the door. 400 people are standing and waiting for, for that beautiful bride to walk down the aisle. That is what Israel is experiencing right now. They had gone through such pain and torture and, and, uh, and difficult times in their lives, and they'd seen some, some very difficult things. And now, it was the anticipation of what they had looked forward, forward to their entire lives. God was about to do it as He allowed them to cross the Jordan. So Joshua helps us to see the significance of the event by slowing the story down and helping us to feel the gravity of what was about to happen. Let's begin reading in Joshua chapter 3, in verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and he and all the sons of Israel set out from Shittim and came to the Jordan, and they lodged there before they crossed. At the end of three days, the officers went through the midst of the camp, and they commanded the people, saying, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God with the Levitical priests carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. However, there shall be between you and it a distance of about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua spoke to the priests, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over ahead of the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went ahead of the people. Now the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel that they may know that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. You shall moreover command the priests, priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you come to the edge of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the, Perez, the Perizzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. 
Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. Now then, take for yourselves twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man for each tribe. It shall come about when the soles of the feet of the priests who carry the ark of the Lord of all the earth rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan will be cut off and the waters which are flowing down from above will stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priests carrying the ark of the covenant before the people, and when those carried who carried the ark came into the Jordan, and the feet of the priests carrying the ark were dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows, overflows all its banks all the days of harvest, the waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap a great distance away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. And those which were flowing down towards the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. So the people crossed opposite Jericho. And the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing Jordan." We have seen how God has promised success to His people when they depend on Him for strength. And today we're going to see that God's promise of success begins with His leadership and includes His power. And so we are going to look first at the symbol of God's leadership in verses 1-13. through And then later we'll see the the power that God displays, the demonstration of God's power in verses 14-13. Through 17. So the setting, we, we first have the setting in verses 1 and 2. <coughs> Excuse me. And in verse 2 it says, At the end of the three days the officers went through the midst of the camp. Turn back to chapter 1 and verse 11 because we need to understand what this three days is talking about. <coughs> chapter 1. Verse 11 says, Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, saying, Prepare provisions for yourselves, for within three days you are to cross this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. So we go back in, in history a little bit when God had first commanded Joshua, It's time to go. And so Joshua commanded the officers, Let's go. we got three days and we're going to cross. But now we have, remember in chapter 2 we had the story of the spies going across, and that took them three days to hide out in the hills. And then now Joshua says, hold on, verse 2, chapter 3, verse 2, it says, at the end of three days, the officers went through the midst of the camp. So there's some difficulty trying to understand this. Is this an additional three days from what we were talking about before, or is this just just a repeat of what had been happening before? I think it is a repeat because when we look in chapter 1, it says that Joshua commanded the officers. And now, in chapter 3, we see that the officers are commanding the people. We're going to go in three days. So, I think we're talking about the same event. So, the, the main command here that Joshua gives to them, and that is repeated over and over again in this chapter, I hope you noticed it, was in verse 3. It says, And they commanded the people, saying, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God with the Levitical priests carrying it, you shall set out from your place and go after it. Notice, However, there shall be between you and it a distance of about 2,000 cubits by measure. Don't come near it, that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. 
The command is, keep your distance from the ark. Okay, The ark is going into the Jordan River before you. You keep your distance. Now, why, why bring the ark? Why would God have the people of Israel bring the ark of the covenant with them into battle? It seems like it would kind of slow them down and, and be in the way. But the ark, remember, was, was normally kept in the tabernacle and later the temple, but would often accompany them into battle, wouldn't it? And basically, the ark is, is a symbol of God's presence. It's a symbol of God's presence. No longer were, is, was Israel following this pillar of cloud or pillow, pillar of fire by night, which was a symbol of God's presence. Now they have the Ark of the Covenant. And so God is saying, listen, take that into the Jordan first because I want to show you that I am going in first. Okay? You are going to stand in the middle of a raging river where, where uh, there is danger all around. But I want you to know that I'm going first. And so he sends the Levitical priest with the Ark of the Covenant. And so throughout these two chapters, Joshua mentions the Ark of the Covenant. Why so much, so much repetition? Well, I think it's, it's because of the significance of what it was. It was to protect them. It was their guide, their leadership. It was a symbol of God's leadership. Hey, I'm going before you. Remember, Israel is going into battle and they didn't know what was going to happen. They, didn't, they realized that they were going to receive the land. They didn't know how many people were going to die before they actually received the land. And so there's a lot of questions in their mind and God was saying, listen, don't fear. Remember what He told Joshua in chapter 1. Do not be afraid. Have courage because I am with you and I will go before you. And this is what He's telling all of Israel now. Stand back and watch. Okay? I am going in before you. I am going to guide you into this land which I have promised. So why the significance of the distance there in verse 4? It says, keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits by measure. A cubit is about um, a foot and a half. So we're talking about uh, about a thousand yards or a half a mile. Okay, We're talking about a half a mile. And I think one of the significance, one of the reasons that, that Joshua tells us the distance is because it shows us how wide the river really was. Look at verse 17. Notice what the priests do once they get into the river. And the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel crossed on dry ground until the nation had finished crossing. So the priests start out on the edge of the water. Remember, they dip their feet in, and then the water stops. They, they walk to the middle and stop. Okay, And this is basically about a half mile, which makes sense because we also find out that this is during flood stage. Look at verse 15. At the end it says, For the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of harvest. Their days of harvest were around March or April, our time. So that was when the floods were, were high. And so it makes sense that the river was wider than normal. And so they're standing in the middle about a half mile away from Israel behind them. So that means that the Jordan River is about a mile across. This is no small miracle. We'll get to that later. But I think that's the point. That's one of the points of telling us the distance. But another reason is, is found in verse 5. 
It says, do not come near it at the end. It says, do not come near it that you may know by which way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Notice God is trying to show them that, listen, you don't know where you're going. Okay, You don't know how I am going to lead you, so just stay back a good distance, half a mile, and then see what I'm about to do. And so that's one of the stated reasons. And then we'll get to... We'll, get, we'll look in more detail when we get to verses 10 and 11 about how God was crossing into Canaan first. So then in verses 5, 6, and 8, Joshua gives instruction, instructions for crossing. In verse 5 it says, Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. This is a call for purity in verse 5. And this is similar to what the people of Israel had to do at the, uh, when they were at Mount Sinai before Moses went up to receive the Ten Commandments. Moses told them, you need to consecrate yourselves. And this idea is basically that they needed to abstain from, uh, from sexual relations and also they needed to keep their clothes clean because before God, he demanded purity. And the point is here, Joshua is saying, consecrate yourselves. Why? Why do all of these rituals? We're just crossing the Jordan. God was saying, listen, you need to focus on the work that I have for you to do. Okay, So set aside all of those dirty clothes and, and those activities which, which weigh you down and which keep you behind and slow you up and focus on what I'm about to do because you need to depend on me. So he has a call for purity in verse 5. And then he has a call for action in verses 6 and 8. And we see that um, the, the people, the priests who were holding the ark, were commanded to stand still. They were commanded to stand still once they got to the edge of the river. Why, in verse 8, would God tell them to stand still? Again, as I was saying at the beginning, I think God was trying to show them, listen, slow down. Pay attention. What, about, what is about to happen has been culminating for years, and now it's finally here. Are you ready? Just stand still and watch me work. Watch me do this great miracle. And then later in chapter 4, he'll, he'll tell them, and now, now that that miracle is done, look back. Put up a symbol so that you remember what happened here. This is a huge event that is about to take place. And so Joshua was making sure that they were ready. Have you ever had one of those moments in your life where, where God was trying to help you see that we need to slow things down? Like at your graduation or, or marriage or whatever, um, job promotion, God kind of helps us to see the significance of what He's about to do. And sometimes we get so busy and we... We just buzz through life and we, we forget to stop and see what God is doing. And so there's a call for action. But there's also a promise here to exalt Joshua. We'll talk more about this next week. But look at verse 7. It says, Now the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel. And so God gives Joshua this promise of exaltation. And he fulfills it in verse 14. You see, the people of Israel, they followed Moses and they believed that Moses was a man of God and that Moses was close to God, but not for Joshua. Joshua had not proven himself as, 
a spiritual leader. And so, and so God was exalting him. But He wasn't exalting him for the sake of Joshua so that Joshua could receive acclaim and, and all sorts of, of great things and, and notoriety. But it was so that the larger purpose, so that everyone would know the God of Joshua. And that's the point of God exalting all leaders. It's so that, so that people can see that God is not exalting the leaders for their sake, but so that they can see, those people can see, that God is exalting those leaders so that the people can see God through the leaders. So that the people can see that God is with the leaders. And so this is no act of human uh, ingenuity. Joshua can't force people to follow his leadership. Joshua can't force people to, to exalt him. That's something that God has to do. And this was the event God was going to use in order to exalt Joshua. And basically this was the idea of causing the eyes of Israel to revere him. Because he was about to take this first step of obedience. He was about to cross into the Jordan. And um, so then we come to the procession through the Jordan River. The command to to have the ark continue to move. And that's in verses 9-11. Then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord. By this you shall know that the living God is among you. And so the main purpose of why God was leading them into the Jordan with the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of this Ark of the Covenant, was so that they could recognize that He was the God, not just the God of Israel, but the God of all the earth. Notice in verse 10, By this you shall know that the living God is among you and that He will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite and the Hittite. And He lists all these people that they're about to face in battle. And He says, Get ready to see what I'm about to do. I'm not just the Lord. This, this stands in contrast to those false gods that the Canaanites were serving. Baal, for instance, he, he thought he had leadership or command over the sea god. And God was showing them, no, I have command over the waters. And not only do I have command over the, wa- over the waters, I have command over all of you wicked people. And I will dispossess you. I will move you out of this land which I own and which I have the right to possess through His people, Israel. And so then we come to the act. We come to the act in verse 14-17. through 17. We see the demonstration of God's power. This miraculous crossing. I want you to notice first the timing of the miracle in verses 14 and 15. So when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priests, carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and when those who carried the Ark came into the Jordan and the feet of the priests carrying the ark were dipped into the edge of the water. Then verse 16, the waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in a heap. God said, when these priests get to the edge, just as soon as their feet touch, He will stop this flow of water. It's interesting that, that these, these miracles that God did on either end of the wilderness wandering are both water miracles. You have the Red Sea crossing, Back, uh, back when they were being chased by the Egyptians. And then you have like a bookend 
you have the crossing of the Jordan. Now before they they were they were being chased, right? They were being chased. So God rescued them. He was showing his power to rescue. But now he is showing his power to give them victory in the Jordan crossing. No longer are they being chased by anyone. Now they're going to actually be chasing their enemies. And so God uses these miracles of the of the water uh, to prove that He is a great God. And so there, as soon as the priests touched their little toes into the edge of the water, the water shut off as if there was a dam or, or some other sort of natural event that just stopped the water. And now the water has completely stopped flowing. Now this is a huge event. And so we need to see the significance or the magnitude of this miracle. And we see that in verses 16 and 17. Verse 16 says, The waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap a great distance away in a city called Adam. Now this is different from the Red Sea miracle. The Red Sea, remember, was just a standing body of water. So God caused it to, to rise up on both sides. There was a wall of water on both sides so that they could walk through on dry, dry ground. But remember, we're here at a river. And a river is constantly flowing. It's uh, the width of this river is about a mile long, so it's similar to the Mississippi River. We we go to Iowa a couple times a year, and we cross over at I-80 at the Mississippi River. And right there, it's about a mile long. That's about the size of this Jordan River at flood stage. And so this water's coming down; it's flowing. God, all He has to do is stop it on one side, and the water stops flowing to the south of it. And that's what he did here. So it rose up in a heap at the city called Adam. Now, why does Joshua even mention the city? Who cares where where this water was risen up in a heap? Do we? Well, I think the point is it also highlights the magnitude of this miracle because this city was actually 20 miles north of where they were, of where they were crossing. Remember, they're crossing just on the other side of Jericho, down near the Dead Sea. But the water rose up in a heap 20 miles up the river. And so some people say, well, maybe it was a mudslide or something like that. And from history, we find out that that there have been mudslides that have shut off this river. In fact, in 1927, there was a mudslide that that, uh, caused a stoppage of flow for 20 hours. And then in the 1200s, there was an earthquake that caused a mudslide up the river and it stopped it for 16 hours. But the difference between this event that we're looking at and those events is that that those events did not happen during flood stage. So those were only about 9 or 10 feet wide. The, the river was only 9 or 10 feet wide at that point and probably only 9 or 10 feet deep. Now we're talking about a mile wide and perhaps up to 100 feet deep. So this is a huge stoppage of water. And so the, the water's stopped with no visible obstruction. But even if you did say it was an earthquake and there was a mudslide, it would still have to be a miracle, right? Because notice in verse 16, it's when they dipped their feet into the edge of the water. So if... If God stopped the river 20 miles north with a mudslide, let's say, how long would it take to get to actually get to them and the water stops flowing so that it's gone from their feet? It would take a couple hours. 
for it to flow down 20 miles. And so even if it was a mudslide, which it would have to be an enormous one to stop this amount of water, then it was still a miracle. It was still a great work of God. But I like to, to see things in, in numbers. So I, I kind of did some math on, on, these, uh, on the size of this river. And basically we're talking about from Adam all the way down to the Dead Sea, we have 20-some miles, and on average maybe a half a mile wide during flood stage, and about 50 miles deep. So we're talking about 12 billion cubic feet of water, or 90 billion gallons of water is just being shut off. It's similar to that Mississippi River being shut off. Now, just to give you an idea of how big 90 billion gallons of water is, because most of us don't drink that much water or, or take a bath in that much water or whatever, so we don't understand 90 billion gallons of water. The largest inland lake in Michigan is Houghton Lake. Houghton Lake is, uh, is 20,000 acres or 31 square miles. Its, it's average depth, depth is about 7.5 feet. So we're talking about 6.5 billion cubic feet of water or 48 billion gallons of water. So imagine Houghton Lake being completely drained. That's a large amount of water. And this is, this is, that's only half the amount of water that God was draining through the Jordan River. The Jordan River, this 20 some square or 20 some miles of river that were being shut off, was twice the size of Houghton Lake. And so this is a huge miracle. It all dumped into the Red Sea. But I think, I think if that's not significant enough, or if you don't think there's enough magnitude there, think about this in, in verse 17. And the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel crossed on dry ground. Okay, have you ever been out in a field after there's been a significant rain and there's standing water? I mean, it takes a long time for water to drain. Think of 90 billion gallons of water in a riverbed and now you're walking through this. You would be up to your eyeballs in mud, wouldn't you? But somehow, God causes... Israel to be able to cross on dry ground. I mean, to me, that is a significant part of this miracle. And so God was showing them that, that He is strong. He is the Lord. Not just the Lord of Israel, but the Lord of all the earth. He controls everything. And then we see one other significant thing in these verses, and that's the very end of verse 17. It says, until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. Now, if we just read through that quickly, we probably wouldn't understand. But the na- when God or when the when Joshua writes this, he says, all the nation. This is the first time that Israel is referred to as a nation. Before they were called the sons of Israel, Israelites, Israel, the nation, or not the nation, but Israel, and now they're being called a nation. And we remember back in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 6, you don't have to turn there, but God had promised them that you shall be a kingdom of priests. And to Abraham in Genesis 12, 2, he said, I will make of you a great nation. Before they were just nomads, just a, a group of wanderers, 
And now God is making them into a nation. How? Well, he's, a, he's about to dispossess the enemies of their land and allow Joshua and Israel to become as one nation in this land and be able to possess it for several years. So God is, is making them into a nation. So I hope that you've seen that, that, first of all, that God is a great God. I mean, has God done great works in our life, in our lives. Who are you looking to for guidance in your life? Are you following God's leadership? Or are you in too much of a hurry to get what you want out of life that you're not waiting around for the priest to stand and and move forward? You're ready to just take off and, and take it for yourself. God is showing us that, that He is our leader. He is our guide. And we must stop, stand still, and just watch what God is going to do. Because He is going to do some great things through us. But sometimes we don't wait. We often ignore Him. And then when we've exhausted all of our resources, when we've come to the end of our rope, so to speak, then we finally say, God... I need you. This is when I need you. But we don't recognize that God has been trying to lead us all along and we have been neglecting Him. God is, is in fact, giving us the strength to follow. And so we find today that God was showing Israel that He is the one that's going before them. They have nothing to fear. Not only is He with them, but He is also leading them. And no matter what type of difficulty we face in life, is there anything too hard for God? We stand at the edge of a difficult circumstance not knowing what God is going to do. But is there anything too hard for God? God is powerful And God is our leader, and we must follow Him. Although our lives may be full of difficulty and struggle, the Bible is clear, and and Joshua is clear, that, that God is with us, and that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Not life, not death, not any creature, not angels or principalities, not things present or not things to come. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that we have in Jesus Christ. God is with us. And God is powerful to act no matter what our problem. And I hope that you've also seen that God is gaining glory for Himself. He says, so that all of the world, including us, would know that God is mighty. But we have to follow Him. We have to simply, calmly wait for Him and follow. Follow what He has commanded for us to do and trust Him for the outcome. Trust that God knows what is best for us. Sometimes we're too much like the the Israelites as they were traveling through the wilderness. Remember the first set of spies that went across the land 
they came back with this report. These guys are too big for us and there's too many. We can't do it. But what did they realize? What did they fail to realize? That it wasn't going to be them that won the battle. It was God. And this current group of Israel Israelites finally figured that out. That it was God that was going to do the work. And we need to do the same thing. We need to realize that it's not because of our power or our smarts that we can accomplish anything in our lives or that we can get through these difficult circumstances. But it's because of God and His providence and His power. Our problems may be too big for us, but they're not too big for God. And so we must put our faith in God and trust in Him for the outcome. And faith in God is not simply an affirmation of facts, but it's, but it's an agreement. It's an obedience. It's a call to action that we will stop and see what God requires of us and in faith follow Him by engaging our minds and our bodies into the service to which He has called us. Will you follow God or will you go on ahead of Him without waiting? Let's bow together for prayer. Lord, we're thankful for the uh, truth that we can find in Your Word. We're thankful for the Holy Spirit that helps us to understand them. I pray that You would allow Him to, to enlighten our minds and remove the hostility that we have Help us to see our need to follow You. Help us to understand that that there is no one greater than You and that we know nothing in comparison to You. Help us to put our full confidence in You so that You can lead us like You have planned and like You desire. We We long to do what You desire for us and so we pray that You would help us in doing so We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.